This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Welcome back. I have a pressing question on my mind that I want to pose to you, and it's this. Can you trust anyone who just goes by one name? You know, can you trust someone who goes by Madonna or Cher or Prince? I think the answer as a general proposition is clear. You cannot. You cannot trust people who go by one name as a general proposition. There are exceptions to this general proposition, this general rule, of course. Pele, you can trust Pele, the great soccer star. Pele is probably before the time of many of you listening. It's before my time, frankly. Pele was kind of a has-been when I was growing up. So anyways, Pele was this great Brazilian soccer player and he led Brazil to the World Cup, like in the 60s or something. So, anyways, I digress. But you can trust it, Pele. That's my point. So, there are exceptions to this rule. There's another exception. You can trust the guy named Neville, even though Neville goes by only one name. His given name was Neville Goddard, but he dropped the Goddard at some point and just started going by Neville. So, that's weird. Especially considering that he's nowhere near as famous as Madonna or Cher or Prince, or Pele during his time. Neville is actually a rather obscure character, yet nonetheless he went by Neville. Neville wrote a book called Resurrection. And yes, your instincts are right. It is about the Gospels, the four Gospels. The book Resurrection, that is, the book written by Neville. That book is, as you would suspect, about the Bible. And about resurrection and about the story of Jesus and his resurrection. The difference, though, is it's nothing at all like any other book that's ever been written about the Gospels at all. And I think that's probably an understatement. Neville, unlike most Gospel commentators, believes that the stories in the Gospels, as well as the general story comprised in all four Gospels, because sometimes the stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of them are different from gospel to gospel to gospel. But there's some, there's an overall story that's common to all four. So he says the specific stories, depending on the gospel, as well as the general story that's told in all four gospels, is basically a coded message to the reader on how to achieve your goals, how to get what you want, basically. That's basically what Neville says. It really has nothing to do with right or wrong or commandments or any of this stuff. It's all just an encoding of secret wisdom. And the wisdom encoded in the Gospels, according to Neville, enables you to get what you want out of life. That's what Neville says the whole New Testament is really about. Just one big secret encoded wisdom or secret knowledge that enables the reader, once the reader can decode the Gospels, to get whatever he or she wants. And I think it's not a stretch to say that such a view is rather unconventional, heretical even, not the way most readers would view the Gospels in the New Testament, I think. Nonetheless, provocative, a provocative way to view the Gospels in the New Testament, because we're all fascinated. I think at the same time by something called secret wisdom, secret knowledge. That, that's quite provocative, and that, that intrigues us, the notion that there's something deeply encoded, and if we could only 
decode it. Oh, then we can get whatever we wanted because everyone knows if you get whatever you want, then you can really be happy, right? Well, I was intrigued by this provocative assertion by Neville, his claims about secret wisdom and secret knowledge. And so I read the book, Resurrection. I read it a while ago, actually. Of course, in fact, I don't read anything at all anymore. I listen to it. I listen to it all on, on my phone. So I listen to this book, Resurrection. It's really not a book, actually. It's a compilation of a bunch of pamphlets that Neville had written over the years. He was a sort of a self-help guru during the 30s and 40s and 50s. That's when he lived. And he gave lectures and he wrote pamphlets and he distributed these pamphlets and some became more widely read than others. And the most widely read of these pamphlets, these tracts, were compiled into the book Resurrection. So Resurrection is really about five or six pamphlets stapled together. So I downloaded Resurrection and I listened to it. Or in modern parlance, I read it. And even though it's a compilation of a bunch of different pamphlets, there's a theme that ties all the pamphlets together. And the message from all the various pamphlets knitted together in the book Resurrection can basically be summed up this way. Causes and their effects are totally reversible and can be switched around so that any particular effect can become a cause and any particular cause can become the effect of the thing that it causes. That's weird. Let me explain what I mean. Or rather, let me try to explain what I think Neville means. Have you ever reached into your pocket and found a $20 bill? That's kind of a cool thing to happen. Free money gives you a certain feeling. Well, the feeling is the effect. The cause is finding the money. What Neville is saying is, if you can experience the feeling of finding the money, then it'll cause you to find the money. Those two things are totally reversible. We often think that we're not going to feel the joy of having the money without actually finding the money first in the pocket. But what Neville is saying is, just experience the joy of finding the money. Then you will find the money. You've probably all heard similar type of modern day philosophies. This is sort of a trendy thing to talk about right now. Law of attraction, the law of manifestation, these things are all talked about, popular, not novel at all. Well, when Neville was writing in the 30s and 40s and 50s, of the 20th century. It was quite novel, this notion of reversibility of cause and effect, and more specifically, that feelings can cause the things that cause the feelings, that can cause the things that cause them, and around and around and around it goes. And so when you decode this secret knowledge, according to Neville, when you understand it, then you can, through your feelings, through your beliefs, cause the things that you want which would supposedly cause the feeling should they really happen. And then Neville goes through the New Testament painstakingly, through all these stories, through the whole arc of Jesus's life even, to try to demonstrate that it's just one big parable, trying to teach this lesson to us, the readers, that, that the New Testament and the Gospels have nothing to do with theology or right and wrong or getting to heaven or any of that stuff, but everything to do with using this law of reversibility to your advantage. How strange. Or is it? Because there's some equally strange language in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, there's this. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen 
were not made of things which do appear. This was written by Paul in a letter to the Hebrews who were at Jerusalem. The Hebrews were Jews who had converted to Christianity. And what is Paul saying in these verses? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. What does that mean? Well, in some sense, it sounds like the faith that Paul is talking about is not unlike the feeling that Neville teaches about. Because Neville says the feeling that something has occurred can cause that thing to occur. If you can conjure up this feeling and then really believe it 100%, that feeling is causative. That's what Neville is saying. Well, it sounds like Paul is saying something similar, even though he's using words like faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Faith is such so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Sounds like Paul and Neville are talking about the same thing, even though they're using different language. Are they? Well, let's dive a little bit deeper into Neville's teachings. Neville told a story in one of his writings about being drafted into the army at the beginning of World War II. He didn't want to be in the army. He had a wife. He had a child in New York City. He was older, so he was surprised that he was drafted into the army. Nonetheless, there he was in boot camp, and he didn't want to be there. And so each night, he would go out into the yard, and he would pace around, and he would try to feel the feeling of being released from the army, of being back with his wife and his child. At the beginning of doing this, he went to his commanding officer, and he said, hey, look, I'm older. I've got a wife and a child. Maybe you can let me out of the army. And the commanding officer said, forget it. After that, Neville spent each night walking around the yard, conjuring up the feeling, and then making himself believe, I'm not quite sure how that process works, but making himself believe that he had been released. After doing this for a few weeks, one day he got a call from the commanding officer, and the commanding officer had reconsidered and was going to release Neville, honorably discharge him from the army, and that's what happened, and Neville went home. Neville, of course, attributes that result to the fact that he had the feeling first. He felt the elation. He felt the joy. And he believed that it was true. And that's what caused it. That's how Neville explains it. It's not a coincidence. It's not just random luck. But he himself caused it. He tells other stories about his older brother who used this power of feeling, of visualizing, to create a very prosperous company in the Caribbean where he lived. His brother, who had nothing, built up a company with warehouses and production. And he at first envisioned all of it and felt the joy of having these things. And then they manifested over time. Again, back to Paul, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Evidence of things not seen. Sounds like Paul's driving at this idea that Neville had experimented with. Is that what faith is? We don't think of faith that way, do we? We think of faith as more of a commitment of sorts. If you're faithful to the church, you keep all the commandments, you stick to the orthodoxy, that's what being faithful to the church means, or a faithful member. If you're faithful to your wife, it means you don't cheat on her, you don't stray. The way we view faith, typically, is as a way to mark adherence or fidelity or loyalty. Then we say it takes some faith to think that you ought to exercise faith. You know, you, you got to have a little bit of faith 
to believe that you should be loyal or be committed or, or restrict yourself in certain ways as you're taught by the church or by your parents or that being faithful requires a little bit of faith. But we kind of jumble it up and it all kind of leads us to this idea that faith is the notion of being loyal or committed or limited in some way or prescribed against something. Well, Neville talks about faith in a totally different way and it sounds like Paul is too. Faith, the way those two guys are talking about it, almost seems like it's a power unto itself. It's an animating power. It's a power that affects something, produces something that that heretofore hadn't existed. Well, that's weird. But it's not just weird. It raises questions about what is, what can be, and how one gets from point A to point B. And what's your role and what's God's? And you don't have to think about these things very long to come to a general conclusion of sorts. And the general conclusion is this. Most of us live our lives, day to day, moment to moment, week after week, doing things that we think will drive anxiety away and replace it with peace, will drive anxiety away and replace it with a sense of accomplishment or security. We are all driven by that constant need for yet another dopamine fix. We're doing things to pursue a feeling that we think will result from the things that we're doing. Hardly any of us start any process we're involved with, with the feeling that we want. We are all trying to produce a feeling. We're trying to cause the feeling because that's how we understand the world to work. The feeling is the effect. So if we're feeling anxiety, we need to do something to cause a different feeling. Our inner state at all times is, by definition, according to us anyways, the result of something that has preceded it, the effect of something that has caused it. So if you want to feel differently than you do now, you got to go out and do something differently. You got to go create a new cause. And that will produce a new effect, which will be a new inner state for you. And we hope that this new inner state is better, is an improvement. I mean, that's why we're doing the thing that, we, that, that we're doing. We're trying to cause something. Namely, we're trying to cause ourselves to feel better. Try, trying to make ourselves feel like we're successful or we're good parents or we're achieving. Or if we're not achieving, then at least we're a victim and we've given it the old college trier. That's what we're doing all the time as a general statement. As a general statement, we do not think that we ought to start with the feeling. We ought to start with the inner state because we think the inner state is the effect, not the cause. And we're taught you can't control the consequences or the effects of anything. All you can do is control the cause. And I guess there's some wisdom to that. I mean, that's what we teach our kids, right? You can't control the consequences once you start down a path. Well, you can't control the consequences. That's why we tell them not to drink and drive, right? That, that's, what, that's what we're trying to impress upon them. You know, we're, we're trying to impress upon them that if you're a jerk to all the people in your school, the consequence is unavoidable, that everyone's going to not like you. That's what we teach. And I guess there's some wisdom in that. There is. And certainly in the physical world, there's something about that. I mean, you, you, you can't repeal the law of gravity, for example. If you step off the ledge of the building, you will fall. So there's something to this idea that certain effects, certain consequences are unavoidable. Nonetheless... Are we clinging too strongly to that notion in other aspects of our lives where perhaps we can control the consequences or dictate the effects first? Are there areas where we can divine the feeling and thereby stimulate 
the cause. Too often, I think, we demand all the things that we see as causes to change before we can. We demand to have more money, more friends, to be treated the way we think we ought to be treated before we feel contentment or happiness or peace or joy or confidence. We demand achievement before we display confidence. We demand others to treat us with the respect that we think they ought to before we have respect for ourselves or feel good about ourselves. Someone has to treat us better. Other people have to change. My boss has to change. I need to have more money. I need to live in a prettier place. I cannot be happy or control my feelings unless all these requirements are met. And until that time, I'm going to complain and gripe. And That's the way most of us think. Neville and probably Paul have a very different message. And whether or not the New Testament secretly contains encoded ancient wisdom that only people like Neville and Paul can decipher for us, or not, they're both onto something. And if you start thinking about your inner state, your feelings, your sense of anxiety, or your lack of anxiety, your sense of peace, or your lack of peace, as something that you can control independent of any of the stimulus around you, if you can start to think of cause and effect and effect and cause as kind of independent of each other, then your life will begin to change dramatically at least as far as your inner state is concerned, but also in terms of what you experience in fact. Can that possibly be true, A? And can it possibly be achieved, B? Or is all this just a lot of nonsense or just too hard? Luckily, we live in modern times with technology, science, and we've all learned the scientific method. And the scientific method, it turns out, is is pretty easy and, and straightforward. And it's basically this. If you wonder if something is true or not, you go out and try and experiment with it. And then you you see if it works. I mean that's that's a bad summary, I know, but but that but that's I mean that's kind of it, right? You're not sure if something works the way you you hope it might, so you go out and you you try it and you, you see what happens. You observe. Now, the problem in life, with your life, is there's no control group. There's only one of you, or me. There's no control life. You don't have a counterfactual to your life. So it gets, it's a little trickier when you're experimenting on your own life. Because you don't have a clone of yourself to observe as the control group. Because that's what you really need in true science. You need the experimental group and then the control group. And you experiment on the experimental group. But then the control group, you don't do the experiment on the control group. And then you compare the two groups at the end. You know, when I was in elementary school, we experimented, in air quotes, about whether sunlight would affect plants. And so we had a control group of plants, and then we had the experimental group of the plants. And the control group, we left in the sunlight. And then the experimental group, we put in the closet for a week. And then at the end, you know, to no one's surprise, this is, you know, world-class education, at its best. But to no one's surprise, we pulled the plants out from the closet at the end of the week, and lo and behold, those plants had died. And so, sunlight, it turns out, we discovered in elementary school, affects plants positively. Well, the problem with you is you, you, there's no control group for you to put in the closet. There's only one. And so, the only way you can compare is intertemporally. So, if you want to mess around with this, does the feeling first matter in your life? You have to 
just sort of remember your life, how it was a long time ago before you were doing this. And that, that can be messy. Still, you can experiment to see if what Neville has taught or what Paul has taught or what any of these guys are driving at when they talk about faith or feelings or cause and effect or the law of reversibility. You, you can experiment in your life to see if any of it holds water. Because what do you have to lose? Experimenting with faith, experimenting with Neville's teachings, these are not dangerous activities. You have nothing to lose. And so, why not? That's basically what Alma taught in chapter 32 of Alma. That's the great chapter on faith in the Book of Mormon. In chapter 32, Alma says, think of any idea as a seed and plant the seed and see if the seed grows. Do an experiment. Begin to experiment with dealing with how you're feeling and how you're thinking first. Think of your feelings and your moods and your thoughts as things that cause your life, the situation of your life, the setting, the people that end up being attracted to you, your success. Try to hold your mood and your thoughts in a, in a high, at a high level, regardless of what's happening around you, and see if what's happening around you actually changes as a result. Play around with this idea of your thoughts and your feelings as being the evidence or the power or the unseen that produces what later is seen. It's weird, murky, metaphysical stuff, I know. And maybe it's a lot of nonsense. But you'll never know if you don't start experimenting with it. Some people, of course, are naturals at this. They're congenitally upbeat, happy, optimistic. And everything seems to go right for them, which makes others envious. There's a particular person I knew back in New England who comes to mind. She grew up in a horrible home, highly dysfunctional, bordering on abusive. Yet somehow she found herself living with with arguably the wealthiest family in Massachusetts. When you talked to her, she was upbeat, happy, smiling. She had a good job. She was articulate. She was a success. She did not consider herself a victim. The rest of her family was. She couldn't change them. But she, somehow along the line, had learned that no matter what was going on around her, she could control her inner state. That part of her she could control. She was in charge of. And we can have a whole nother podcast about methods and techniques about controlling your inner state, irrespective of what's happening around you. In fact, we ought to probably do a whole series on that because that's a skill unto itself. But my point in raising this particular woman who lived in New England when I was there for a while is that somehow she began to control her surroundings by first controlling what was going on inside of her. And the way she felt was the cause. And everything around her was the effect, not vice versa. It's a tricky thing to learn and to master, particularly if you have a strong imagination, if you have an active, facile mind, because your mind can hijack you. Your ego can take you over, blind you. But if Neville and if Paul, if those guys are remotely right in what they're trying to teach us, it's worth taking some time out of your busy day to go inward and take stock of just what you're causing, 
with your crazy out of control thoughts and feelings and moods. That's more important than the next appointment. That's more important than the next quiz, the next test, the next meeting, the next car you want to buy. You think all those things are going to cause the feelings you want. Well, Neville and Paul are saying it's just the opposite. Can that be true? Well, do an experiment and compare your life after the experiment with the only control group that you have, your life before the experiment, and see if they're different even a little bit. If your life after the experiment is better, then the notion of faith takes on an entirely new meaning. It becomes a power unto itself that you can wield. That's big talk from just some guy sitting in his office now in Salt Lake. But what do you have to lose? Particularly if you're feeling miserable right now. What do you have to lose? Nothing. And so, why not? Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com until next time. <laughs>